0: I have had uh, quite spectacular guests here at the NAC this year. Uh, Nobody was harder to get, took more persistence to get, than Rachel Notley, the Premier of Alberta. Um, I I think partly it's because when everyone else said, when other potential guests said no, I just gave up. But there's always a reason to have Rachel Notley come back, so I had to keep asking. And finally she had, had organized a tour out east to educate us outlanders about how things really work back there in Wakanda. And uh, she was gracious enough to add us to her schedule. So please welcome the Premier of Alberta, Rachel Notley. What on earth will we find to talk about?
1: <laughs> Sports.
0: Yeah, that's true. Favorite TV shows? Uh, I'll tell you what. You might as well take a victory lap. Tell me about the Grey Cup.
1: <laughs> well, as I said this morning, Calgary won in Edmonton. Beat Ottawa. Alberta beat Ottawa. You know, it was good. It was a good day. <laughs>
0: um, it was. Uh, it, it must have been nice to score a win. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, you know, as I said earlier today, I think, you know, we've actually scored a lot of wins. It's just that it seems that because we do, we get more challenges uh, uh, thrown at us. It's like an ongoing test. Oh, you won that one? Do you think so? Well, how about this one? So that's kind of been the way we've been going.
0: Let's back up. Before we get to the heavy stuff, let's, let's back up to the, the, um, the major win that put you in the history books and that put you on the national map, which was the election victory in 2015. Um, I, uh, I met you on the campaign trail during that campaign and uh, at that point you were the leader of the fourth party in the legislature with how many uh, MPP, MLA's?
1: We had uh, we had three others, so myself and the former leader Brian Mason and uh, our now Minister of Education David Egan and our now Minister of Economic Development Darren Billis. So there was the four of us. We were a big group.
0: <laughs> how? How would you compare your level of confidence in, in, in being the premier before that campaign compared to your level of confidence now heading into next spring's election?
1: Oh, well, obviously, uh, you know, experience uh, is the best form of education. There's no question. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you forge your your will and your skills uh, in the face of adversity. And, and as you already indicated, we've probably had more than many. Um, so I feel quite confident uh, uh, that uh, I'm more than equipped for the job, but of course, you know, that's what I said at the beginning of the last uh, election, too, and, and uh, you know, I hope ultimately that the people of Alberta will uh, agree with me when they're asked to weigh in on that question uh, uh, sometime next
0: year. Was there a point in that campaign when you thought, that does it, I'm going to be the Premier? Uh, that when I thought which? Well, that you thought, I've got it now, I'm going yeah. to be the Premier.
1: Well, yes, as I've told a few people, I mean, it was, I don't know, I can't remember, somewhere between five and seven days before the election, uh, we'd seen a bunch of polls coming in, internal, external, and, and I don't know why it was, but there was just a certain combination and a certain, certain pollster, and I can't even remember which one it was now, where I looked at it and it went, oh my goodness, this is actually going to happen, <laughs> and, uh, and so that was a bit of an unnerving day when, when the penny dropped for me, that's for sure. <laughs> Did you feel ready? Uh, at that point, you know, it was more, it was more urgent. It was, I remember getting on the phone, you know, we had a long day on the campaign trail and I was out till 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night going around from campaign office to campaign office, doing a lot of stuff. And I got back to my, uh, my hotel room and I looked at the, the polls and I called my husband in a frenzy and I was like, oh my God, we're going to win and we have no transition team. This is awful. And I completely got all freaked out about it. And he said, get off the phone with me and call your campaign manager. I cannot help with this. (laughs) And so I did, and at that point I said, we're not, we agreed, we weren't doing any more uh, evening events. We were just gonna focus every evening for the remaining five or six days working on transition because we hadn't assembled a team at that point.
0: Wow. Um, Not even like a skeletal?
1: Not really, no. (laughs) No.
0: I mean, even the federal NDP leaders here appoint Brian Topp to head their transition
1: team. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we had brian working on other things at that point <laughs> okay
0: um uh, a little bird reminded me of a, of a couple of quirks in alberta politics one is that um no party that is uh defeated in an election ever comes back as such mm-hmm. the liberals used to actually i mean alberta's been a province for a century there used to be liberal governments mm-hmm. and then it basically, it went away. There was farmers, there was social credit, there was PC, and then um, now there's UCP. Yeah. Yeah. And the other little tidbit is that no government in Alberta, and I expect you take some comfort from this, has only ever been elected just once. Usually, once in, they're 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 allowed to sort of settle in. And are uh, do you feel like that's gonna that trend is going to help you, or is that just that's just statistics and it doesn't really it's not it doesn't have the force of history
1: yeah I, I mean I think it's it's an interesting uh, observation for people who like to look at those kinds of things I think the more critical issues are around you know what kind of province Alberta is now and uh, and uh, whether it's changed and and what the the hopes uh, are of Albertans for the future and uh, you know I feel pretty confident that that uh, my government my leadership is still pretty aligned with that um, and uh, so you know we'll see what how it goes when we get to the campaign. But we're a little ways away from it still. Um, as I've said to other people, uh, I was elected to actually lead the province to govern. We are going through a very challenging time right now, as you've mentioned, and, and so my focus really is on that.
0: Okay. Um, now, you're the second not lead to lead the Alberta NDP. Your dad was the NDP leader for kind of ever, right, from 1968 to 1984. Indeed, yeah. Um, but I'm given to understand that's not the only source of your... Uh, desire to get involved in public life and your activism, mm-hmm. and your mom played a role too.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. I mean, so my dad, as you rightly say, was uh, uh, was the leader and an uh, MLA and the leader of the uh, NDP opposition and the official opposition for a brief period of time in Alberta. My mom was an activist, so I had my dad as an example. I, could, I watched him lead. I watched him represent. Our community as a as a local MLA and and my mom was an activist and she was sort of one of those people that you know you might say she was sort of pushing from behind trying to get things done. But in both cases, they they both cases they shared a similar set of values and uh, they both uh, drew inspiration and meaning from being able to you know make their community uh, around them and people around them to make their lives better. And uh, it was something that I learned very early on was 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 a thing that. Um, Was worth pursuing and and so unlike many people who you know look down their noses for very good reason I'm sure in many cases at at politicians and everyone rolls their eyes about politicians I actually uh, was raised to think it was a noble profession that and the law if you can imagine I mean it's quite ridiculous actually very out of step but uh, nonetheless uh, that was our background.
0: Did you pick up any sort of practical tips, things that uh, help you on the campaign trail or meeting, where to stand at a reception or I don't yeah. know what? Like,
1: <laughs> No, not so much that kind of stuff. I think really, you know, I mean, as you would know from our, from our history, I mean, uh, as much as, you know, my dad was quite revered. I mean, his political height was reached when he managed to elect a caucus of one. To sit with him in the legislature, and he led the official opposition in Alberta with himself and his caucus of one, and uh, and and so it was tough. It was a tough road for him to hoe. And what I learned mostly from him, actually, was this: this uh, the example of hard work. I mean, that guy just never ever stopped, and he was he was everywhere. He cro- crisscrossed the province. Um, the the big joke that we have is that you know there is nowhere that I can go in the province without running into somebody. You know, you would imagine they would say, "Oh, I knew your dad." Now that's common, but what's even more common, or as common, I guess, would be weird if it was more common, but as common is. I knew your dad. He slept on my couch um, because, uh, you know, the NDP, not being a big party, didn't have a big expense account, and so he literally couch surfed his way across the province for about a decade. And so I would watch that and watch him come home. and then you know he'd be home for a short period of time, and, and the phone would ring, and someone, and you know our, our riding, where I grew up, and the riding he represented was about six hours north of Edmonton. And a lot of the time he'd be driving up there from a long day or a long week in Edmonton. And he'd get home, and then the phone would ring, and someone would be angry that uh, the Ministry of Transportation had knocked down their fence while they were working on the uh, road and all their pigs were out. And so there was dad back in the car driving out to help them catch their pigs, you know, at whatever ridiculous hour at night. And so that sort of work ethic was something that I learned very early on. I don't, I don't know that I would say that I'm that hardworking, but I, it gives me something to shoot for.
0: I actually, I'm, I mean, I'm a magazine columnist. I'm the least hardworking guy in Canada. <laughs> I, I need a nap after that anecdote. <laughs> Um, <laughs> he came. You were at University of Alberta mm-hmm. as an undergrad. He came and spoke, and you put a bit of a zinger of a question to him. Uh, do you recall the question?
1: Oh, this was actually at Grand Prairie College. Okay. Was I at Grand Prairie College? College. College. Is this when uh, um, I see people have uh, you've done your research? But uh, yes. Well, so um, uh, he was doing a, a tour on poverty, anti-poverty tour around the country, around the province, and I was a student at Grand Prairie College and wasn't eligible for student loans because you know he had an income. And, uh, and so uh, the, the town hall was just wrapping up and, and the media was still there and I stood up in the back and said, Mr. Notley, I don't know what to do. My, my parents make too much money. I can't get a student loan and there's still two weeks left in the, in the month and I only have crackers in my, in my cupboard. What should I do? I have no money. What would you recommend? He was mortified, <laughs> furious, but because he was known to be the cheapest human in the world, go back to the couch surfing stories. He then rushed me out and gave me $20, like $20. 1983 in Grand Prairie, Alberta, middle of the, the, the oil rush. Let me tell you, $20 got you like a loaf of bread at that point if you were lucky. But uh, anyway, so yes, you learned some advocacy tools.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> flash forward to this morning, and uh, you announced that you're going to buy some rail cars, and you announce it in Ottawa. Uh, we're going to spend probably most of the rest of our time kind of picking apart these issues. But what what has brought us to this pass? It might be the, like how can you summarize the the mess that that we're in? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think the you know, as as many here will probably have heard me say, this is the uh, the the result of. Uh, many, many years and many governments' um, inability, federal governments' inability to get um, pipelines built, whether we're talking about Energy whether we're talking about um, uh, Northern Gateway, whether we're talking about TMX, whether we're talking about KXL, I mean, you know, just go on and on and on. There's been a, a fundamental failure to get pipelines built. And uh, for a very long time, people have been warning, listen, we're, we're reaching a critical point here and we're going to start to have a problem. And so we were we were just skating very close to the problem when, you know, TMX, when the federal government approved TMX um, and things were, were uh, on track there. Um, and, uh, and And we knew it was going to be a little tight right around about now. Um, but uh, then, you know, and, and so that's what we're seeing right now. And then what happened was we had a few problems with, with uh, refineries going down and production picking up a little bit faster than expected. And so we're seeing that problem right now where we have this, we've moved from, from pipeline economics to rail economics to distress barrel economics. And that, that last place is the last place you want to be. And suddenly uh, the product coming out of Canada is selling for $10 dollars, when the rest of the world is getting $50, which is ridiculous. So we can't move the product, and and the Alberta economy is being held hostage, and frankly, the Canadian economy is being held hostage. So what do we do about it? Well, obviously, the long-term solution is pipelines, and we're continuing to push for that. But we know, as a result of the Federal Court of Appeal decision um, in uh, in August, that the TMX pipeline has been delayed by probably about a year. Um, And so... Even though Line Three uh, will hopefully, you know, barring any unforeseen uh, barriers, come into effect in about December of this of 2019, um, it will only clear the market for a few months um, until we that once again come up against another another shortage. And so, in the absence of, of TMX coming online, we need to find another way uh, to move this product out, and we need to keep ourselves away from. Uh, uh, distressed barrel economics. Um, pipeline, uh, or rail economics is not optimal. It's you know less safe and more expensive, but it is significantly better than, than distressed barrel economics, which is what we're facing now.
0: I want to make sure I understand some of the terminology in your speech. You said mm-hmm. you're going to buy two-unit trains. Is that sort of two-train equivalence? It's, it's what we want
1: is to have uh, two-unit trains running per day to move 120,000 barrels
0: per day. Yeah. That's going to net out to like rather more than two actual trains. Though, Absolutely. Because, okay. Yes. So like a dozen trains or something like that. Uh, well,
1: we've got the numbers somewhere, but uh, it's a lot of trains. Okay. A lot of trains and a lot of cars.
0: Now you came close to repeating one of the most interesting lines in your speech this afternoon, but but not quite. So I'm gonna I'm gonna quote it. Um, you say that the current situation is one in which Canada will Canada willfully holds Alberta's economy and Canada's economy hostage. I'm struck by the the word willfully, uh, people have actually decided they're going to tank the Canadian economy?
1: Well, I think some folks have, actually. Um, You know, I mean, what some folks, a a small minority of of folks have decided is that they want to uh, hold hostage or handcuff uh, our energy economy. Um, But a lot of folks don't really understand the degree to which the Canadian economy is inextricably linked to the energy economy and so you know this this idea that you know oh well we're just going to keep the oil in the ground and we're just going to carry on in our happy little world as I said earlier today you know flipping condos and 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 writing a Facebook movie reviews in our in our favorite coffee shop that's not a thing the reality is is that that the Canadian economy relies significantly on the investment that's attracted to this country through our energy industry 20% of our capital investment is through is from the energy industry you've probably heard The stats that I like to throw out there, you know, sort of the net fiscal contribution per capita of each province, and and, you know, you've got around 350, I don't have the exact numbers, but $350 per citizen from Saskatchewan, about 1,100 per citizen from BC, roughly the same amount uh, per citizen from the people of Ontario. And as I said this morning, thank you to the people of Ontario. It's wonderful, about uh, $5,200 per citizen from the people of, of Alberta. Uh, as a net fiscal contributor uh, to, uh, on an annualized basis, to to the federation, and so this is not nothing—like 22 billion dollars a year—and and that's even in the midst of of the recession that we are struggling with right now. It's significantly greater when oil prices are higher. So there are fundamental elements to uh, not only our economy but to our community. That um, that all Canadians rely on the ability to to fund our healthcare system, to fund our public education system, to fund our roads, our highways, our ports, which to be clear are our ports. Um, these are things that that uh, rely in great part on um, a successful and a healthy energy industry. Now the flip side is is that in Alberta, under our government's leadership, is that we've taken great steps to make sure that that industry meets very high standards of environmental responsibility, that we transition that industry to being one of the most sustainable energy industries, uh, non-renewable energy industries in the world. We've put in an emissions cap, we've done, I could talk forever about what Alberta has done in the last three years through our climate leadership plan. We have moved from last to first, uh, leading the continent in in major initiatives to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But that doesn't come for free. And, and to make that transition, to make it justly, where we still keep people working, where they're paying their taxes and supporting our schools and our hospitals, and at the same time, putting a roof over their heads and taking care of their families, that's where we need to find that, that coexistence between a healthy economy and, a, and worthwhile um, action and effective action on the, on the environment. And they're not at odds, they must be seen as going together.
0: I want to before I let it go I want to get go back to that striking sentence one more time Canada willfully holds Alberta's economy and Canada's economy hostage. Sometimes Canada can mean can have various meanings. Is it accurate for me to read that as the government of Canada willfully holds Alberta's economy and Canada's economy hostage?
1: Well, I think it's our regulatory regime. I think it's 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 the it's the the collection of, of mechanisms through which uh, we make decisions. So, I mean, you know, we had uh, as, as I said, we had decades of, of failure to to get pipelines to Tidewater uh, before this current federal government was in place, um, and uh, and because there was a, a failure to acknowledge you know the obligation to consult meaningfully to acknowledge the the concern around the environment to con acknowledge community concern and the need for engagement um and uh and 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 so that caused the problem um then as well we're playing into you know um efforts to to uh, as i say um shut down uh the energy industry and using pipelines as a tool to do that. Um, And and then on top of it, uh, we're also now seeing a high level of regulatory uncertainty being brought to bear by the proposed changes that the current government is bringing in. So all in all, it's it's just a, you know, and then we have the the politics between provinces. I mean, it's just a, it's a number of things that are coming together to inhibit our ability to act as a strategic, thoughtful, um, uh, uh, sophisticated economic player on the international stage. Historically, Canada punches above its weight as an economic player. And I believe we have the ability to do, con- continue doing that and to keep doing that. It's just that right now it's the perfect storm of, of decisions that are going against each other. And the, and the casualty is uh, this, this $10 barrel of, uh, of oil, which is going to actually impact every Canadian.
0: Another sentence that I want to throw back at you, uh, you say that building a new pipeline is just about the most progressive thing we can do. I want to ask you to explain that because I suspect there are in this room new Democratic Party card holders mm-hmm. who do not want you to build that pipeline.
1: So, well, it kind of goes back a little bit to the, the argument that I've already sort of started to make. You know, as I've said, the, the starting point is this. Um... You know our government uh, has adopted a very ambitious and I would suggest a country leading approach to combating climate change. We are pricing carbon, Uh, we're bringing in renewable energy by 2030, 30% of our electricity will be driven by the most uh, efficiently and affordably um, incented uh, renewable energy regime in the country and in some cases in the the continent. Uh, We're phasing out coal. Uh, by 2030, many people don't know. Right now, Alberta burns more coal than the rest of the country put together. So, our decision to phase out coal by 2030 is a big move, um, and and we're doing that. We're also, uh, you know, we're we're bringing in a whole bunch of energy efficiency things. And the key thing is that we've put a cap on greenhouse gas emissions from the oil sands, which is a fundamentally important thing. So. That big move, in and of itself, is progressive. But and as I said, it can't be done for free. We have to be able to to manage a just, just transition towards those objectives. Um, and I would say that you know the federal government, you know, wouldn't have been able to go to Paris so soon after they were elected and and make the commitments that they did had it not been for the moves that Alberta was already making at that point. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's critical that we can continue along this path. The, the second thing is that you know our government, we've done a lot of things. We've, we've raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour. We have protected our public health care. Um, and, uh, and, and expanded our services uh, um, in a careful and prudent way. We protected our public education, hired 4,000 more teachers. We're building 250 schools after the previous government had left a massive infrastructure deficit. Um, we just uh, um, indexed our disability payment scheme and our income support payment schemes. We're doing so many um, important uh, progressive things that ensure that as we uh, make our way through the recession into our recovery, it's a recovery that every Albertan feels and every Alberta family feels, not just at the very, very top. And, and that's, in my view, the way you build a recovery that will last. But that in and of itself is progressive. But to do that, we must be able to, to get the best from our value, from the resources that we all own. And uh, the pipeline is absolutely critical. to to achieving and recovering the best value for those resources.
0: And um, one more thing you said in the speech, the hell of a speech, you should have seen it. Um, (laughs) uh, You suggested that um, for lack of progress on these files you could end up with a society that is angry and more polarized than ever, which I've I've learned is sort of code for uh, the kind of society that Alexa a Trump or picks up Brexit or does that sort of stuff, is that what you're saying? Is that is that uh, in order to keep a more consensual society, we have to find a consensus on on energy and the environment?
1: Well, I, th- I think that that is true. I mean, I think we just we need to move away from polarization, and what we have to do is take direct aim at growing inequality. Because it's, but because I, I think that inequality uh, ignored for too long of a period of time uh, hurts community. It hurts civil society. It, it drives the breakdown of civil society, however you define it. And and so we must always keep um, a very close eye on that. And and obviously, it is much easier uh, to to promote and grow. Equality and equity uh, in a in a prosperous economic environment, and so so it's very critical that we always do that. And so this is why I get um, frustrated when I hear uh, environmentalists with whom I have great common cause and I have great sympathy, but when they talk about things and they and they choose to ignore the consequences of their decisions on their neighbor um, or the person that lives across the back alley who is is uh, working in the energy industry and who needs to be able to also uh, pay their bills and be part of their and, and pay their way in the same society in the same community. And so I just we have to stop thinking about it in a polar way, in a polarized way. We need to see that one must go with the other. Otherwise, we will fail on both.
0: Your job has estranged you from so many Canadian progressives. I'm given to understand you're not really buddies with John Horgan, the Premier of British Columbia, uh, that you're not really in constant contact with the NDP caucus here in town. And earlier, you talked about uh, people who sit in cafes, uh, writing movie reviews on Facebook. But those are your people, surely.
1: Uh, <laughs> than my family members, to be <laughs> clear. <laughs> in fact, I, should, I asked my brother what he does, I was thinking about my brother as I was uh, thinking about what they do. But uh, uh,
0: I, mean, I mean, it's actually possible to imagine an alternative universe in which you had uh, moved to British Columbia and were today the NDP uh, Premier of BC and you were trying to stop another Premier of Alberta from doing what you're trying to do. I mean, is like that sort of cognitive dissonance Mm-hmm. Has got to be a, a sort of prominent feature of your daily psychic life.
1: Well, you know, I mean, yes and no. I mean, let me just say that 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 in Alberta, you know, I, I mean, I my riding is 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 uh, that I've represented since two thousand and eight. It's it's. Uh, Uh, the equivalent of the the Glebe, I guess, here in in Ottawa.
0: Nothing is the equivalent of the Glebe.
1: Well, uh, everybody thinks that until they find their own neighbourhood. But anyway, uh, but the point is, you know, it's a very progressive neighbourhood, and folks there get it. And, and the folks that are on their Facebook blogging about movie reviews, when I walk into the coffee shop, they, they look up and they say, great job, keep up the fight, we need this pipeline. Um, so, you know, I, I, so it's a bit of a, a light touch when I say that I, I love people who um, blog movie reviews on Facebook, just to be clear, I'm just not entirely sure it's gonna make us a lot of money. Um, but uh, the, uh, so the, the reality is, is that um, it, it's not an either or, And uh, and frankly, I don't really feel that incredibly uh, disconnected from many, many progressives in Canada, to be quite honest. Um, I grew up. Uh, in the labor movement. I worked in the labor movement uh, before I got involved in politics. And, uh, and a fundamental principle of being a New Democrat is keeping your eye on regular working people and making sure that their rights are protected and that their livelihood is protected. And if you keep your, your focus there, you're going to be a progressive. And that's where my focus is. And quite frankly, I think that our government has a record on a number of other issues that many other progressives could only wish for in terms of uh, what we've done in education, in terms of the work that our government's done on LGBTQ rights. I mean, we we were a, a, a laggard uh, in Alberta from the perspective of the government's record relative to the rest of the, Canada, the country. We are moving forward on uh, LGBTQ policy in our education system that makes us a leader in Canada. Um, we were a laggard in Alberta in terms of women's representation and the rights of women. We are now, I would argue, a leader in Canada. Um, we uh, are focused on on strengthening our public health care system, not dismantling it and finding ways to privatize it. Um, and uh, And so on many, many fronts, I'm uh, confident that our record um, keeps, keeps uh, my... Uh, keeps us aligned with many, many progressives.
0: I was, I was struck uh, a half hour ago, we were in the green room and you were giving me the gears about the November cover of Maclean's, <laughs> uh, in which we depicted... Uh...
1: Which you kind of invited
0: me to. Yes, you, no, absolutely, to so. yeah, would I... you like to give me the gears about the November issue of Maclean's, I believe was the question. Which
1: I was happy to do, yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> it,
0: it depicted uh, five right. male conservative leaders, Andrew Scheer, and, uh, and Doug Ford, and Jason Kenney, and uh, uh, Scott Moe, and uh, Brian Pallister. Um, who was very reluctant to be in that photo, I should point out, but he <laughs> finally came around, uh, and, it, and, we, and we called them the Resistance. And, uh, and 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 quite casually, you said, "Those of us who are actually in the Resistance." Uh, and uh, the, the, I can't get over the paradox that there are some people in the progressive movement in Canada who would have been quite comfortable seeing you on that cover with those gentlemen, um, because you're—they would say you're getting the dirtiest oil in the world out to the, out to the richest market it can find.
1: Uh, well, I would say that it is not the dirtiest oil in the world, is what I would say uh, quite definitively. And, uh, and it's because of the work of our government, well, it's because of the responsible work of industry leaders um, that, uh, that uh, it is not. And in fact, we're transitioning to having it be some of the, the cleanest and most reliable um, uh, oil in the world. And, and let me be clear, Alberta is not Saudi Arabia. Um, we uh, promote and and in fact enhance, as I was just referring to, human rights in our province. We are promoting and enhancing work to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, Saudi Arabia, which is actually uh, providing probably more oil and gas uh, to eastern Canada than Alberta is, does not have that record. Um, and so, uh, you know, there... The reality is 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 that sometimes these things are a little bit complicated, but. Um fundamentally, as I've said before, I, I feel very uh, confident in our environmental record. I feel confident in the, in the uh, way we have aligned that with the need to support the energy industry in the work that it's doing uh, and support the workers that it employs uh, while still moving forward on, on, on key rights-based issues, environmental-based issues, and general pocketbook issues, which are fundamentally important to, to regular working folk.
0: So we've talked about the oil price differential. We've talked about the remedy of, of buying trains to get the oil to market in the absence of pipelines. How fast will, that, will we be able to get that to happen? How fast will those trains be moving?
1: Well, they probably won't ha- be in play until Line 3 has come into effect. And I know I've heard some people suggest, well, it's not a uh, you know, this is not a worthwhile endeavor because Line 3 would already be in play. Um, and so why do this? And uh, as I've already outlined, the concern is that uh, Line 3 only clears the market for a few months before we find ourselves right back in this situation again. And so that's why um, it's necessary. So... It's true, there's still not a solution between now and this time next year. And so that is, that is a different kettle of fish.
0: Um, another of the um, irritants that you wanted to, to discuss with federal counterparts is uh, Bill C-69, mm-hmm. which essentially implements a new environmental assessment regime for major projects, not just energy projects, but just yeah. like big, big things that people want to do. Uh, and uh, it's caused real consternation in the oil patch. Um, And yet it seems to me that all it would do would be to bring into the formal review process, the environmental considerations and the indigenous consent considerations that wind up getting settled in court anyway. Mm -hmm. So doesn't this simplify a a proponent's life rather than complicating it?
1: Uh, No, I mean, I think that the the object of, of the review um, may be to do that at the end of the day, and and to be clear, even beyond that, I, I you know I agree that, that you know because I was talking about the problems that we'd had uh, uh, for the you know past decade, mm-hmm. I agree that we needed to clean up the system, and we need to have a process in place that earns public trust. Uh, you know, communities, indigenous communities, environmentalists, scientists, all those folks need to know that the matter has been fully uh, fully considered, fully weighed, evidence-based decision making has has occurred um, and, and in a transparent way. So those are all important, important principles. And, and so I agree with the object. The difficulty is, is that in the way it's been drafted, it creates more uncertainty because there's, there's not clarity there. So that's the overarching problem with it Uh, as well because of the things that we've just been talking about. There is tremendous investor uncertainty in the oil patch right now. And and so if you layer on top of it, the investment uncertainty that is created by Bill C-69, maybe Bill C-69 by itself might have been something that could be managed but if you layer it on top of all the other stuff that's going on it becomes a critical mass issue and that's why we're saying you know what we need to start pulling some of these layers of stuff that we are piling on top of Alberta and the job creators in our province and 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 you know help them get just a little bit of air here and, and uh, so C69 um, in its current form has a significant amount of uncertainty in it, and, um, and you know, I mean, there's the issue of downstream considerations that was primarily raised by the NEB before. But we want it stated clearly that downstream stuff will not be considered, um, and um, and and so that's critical. And then and then issues around jurisdiction need to be cleared up. So. We've been told that many of the concerns that we have will be addressed, but we've been told that for almost a year, and we haven't actually seen it reflected in writing, in the legislation, in the regulation. And until we see that, the whole trust us thing, it's not going to work. And even if we wanted it to work for us, it's not going to work for those investors who are already skittish because of all these other things that we're dealing with. And so it's just a matter of being smart with how we position our national economy in an international setting to make sure that we continue to perform.
0: Some people have said, people with an interest, including in, in, in industry and, and in big business, but other observers, wise magazine columnists and others, <laughs> have suggested that Canada is starting to look like a place where everyone's really nice and so on, but, but, but big things can't happen. Because if you, need, if you need to do something that crosses a provincial line or changes neighbourhoods, There'll, somebody will take it to court and win. Mm-hmm. Is that a broader concern of yours?
1: Well, I think uh, I, I think that it is, and I think that's why that, we, you know, we have to find that balance of, of, of you know, fully airing a, a matter and then making a decision and, and going through. And, you know, and that's why, for instance, on T, TMX, prior to the decision of the Federal Court of Appeal, that's where we thought we'd Gotten, And that's one of the reasons why, you know, our government was working so hard. Even after the federal government made the decision to approve TMX, our government was still traveling across the country, educating people, buying ads, meeting with not just like-minded oil executives and and financial uh, executives, but also in union halls and going to environmental conferences and talking to schools to to let people understand why it mattered. Because it was a big decision and it was a controversial decision. And, and it's important to, to uh, try very hard to then build consensus, you know, growing consensus so folks can would, will hopefully understand the, the logic behind it. And, um, uh, and so that's how you work through these tough issues. But we need to, to, to move pretty quickly on it. And, and Canadians as a whole, I think need to understand that at a certain point um, uh, as much as we all like to think locally if we only think locally nationally what's going to happen is we're going to find that there's a lot less uh, in the pot to share.
0: As you raise these um, concerns that are crucial to your province but national in scope how would you characterize your working relationship with Justin Trudeau?
1: You know, I think uh, generally speaking, uh, it's been productive, you know, I mean, I think in, on a lot of matters, we, we share similar values. At the end of the day, my job is to stand up for Alberta and uh, and to stand up for Albertans and to stand up for their jobs and making sure that, that their issues are heard. Um, and so that means sometimes we're not going to agree and sometimes that disagreement will be aired publicly. Um, and sometimes, uh, even while that's happening, we'll be having conversations to try and work our way through it. And I don't think it's any different than on many fronts, frankly, uh, between in terms of federal-provincial relationships.
0: You had a meeting with him, and, um, and on the way out of it, you were asked how it went, you said it was a meeting. Uh, how did the <laughs> meeting go?
1: Uh, um, you know, it was, uh, it, well, as you know, I mean, I talked about it in my speech in that meeting, I outlined what we were looking to see the federal government do as a result of the federal court of appeal decision. Yeah. And, uh, and they didn't do a good portion of what we asked for them to do. So obviously I think it's fair to say it didn't go as well as I would have liked. Um, you know, they, uh, now part of it was, Honestly, uh, a disagreement on tactics, uh, not outcomes. I think it's fair to say we we both very much share the uh, understanding for the outcome that needs to happen, which is that TMX uh, get completed and built. Um, We were disagreeing somewhat on the the way to get there. I hope that in this case, not very often that I say this, my husband would be amazed to hear me say this. I hope that someone else is right and I'm wrong because uh, I almost never say that. But uh, anyway, so at this point, we're just saying, okay, well, that's the way you're going. Uh, you better stick to your timelines and, and particularly with the NEB process.
0: Do you think he bet too heavily on, on, uh, on TMX? He had lukewarm support for um, uh, Keystone down to the States. Mm-hmm. He uh, was clearly not a huge fan of Energy East. He, uh, there was a second pipeline to the Pacific that he outright nixed. Mm-hmm. And then he said, everything will be fine, we'll get this fourth one. Does that turn out to have been a little bit of a bad gamble?
1: Well, you know, I think uh, uh, what I would say is that it is... You know, it's not, it's where, I think all of us were surprised by the Federal Court of Appeal decision with TMX. To be fair, Uh, everybody, including people, many people in the environmental movement. Uh, Quite honestly, the legal consensus was not that that was gonna be the outcome. Uh, So that is what happened. Um, I think that now, I mean, the the previous Northern Gateway project was rife with problems, many, many problems, much more complicated and, and deep problems than what we're seeing with TMX now. Uh, but the decision of the federal government to then follow that with Bill C48 to ban essentially any products from Alberta from ever leaving a northern western port, that in my view, has gone too far because that now is assuming that TMX is, is going to get done and that's all we're ever going to need. Um, and, and I think that that, that that the door should be uh, a, remain open for better, uh, constructed projects uh, to be considered um, uh, to, through the, the northern western port.
0: Bill C-48, which you just described, is the tanker traffic ban. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you say it's a double standard. How come?
1: Well, because it's not a tanker traffic ban because it, it facilitates LNG uh, tankers. Um, and uh, it it bans uh, not only bitumen, it bans upgraded Bitumen. It bans uh, non uh, uh, or synthetic crude. It bans uh, a number of products coming from Alberta, above and beyond. The, uh, the bitumen that, that people uh, suggest that they are worried about. And so it doesn't even allow for proponents to consider projects where they would potentially engage in more refining, which quite frankly is another object of our government. Uh, we are putting massive resources into kick-starting, upgrading in Alberta, unlike anything that you've seen since Peter Lougheed was, was in charge of Alberta. And part of that would... Uh, would, uh, could link into um, uh, work that would result in outcomes, that, or that would result in us being able to use that northern west coast port. But there's this ban on everything except LNG, which doesn't frankly make a lot of sense.
0: Premier Horgan would say it's because um, LNG is a relatively benign substance if it happens to leak out, whereas bit, diluted bitumen, sinks to the bottom of the ocean, mm. you can't get it out, it covers all the fish, it's horrible.
1: He would say that, um, that is true. Um, I would say, again, that I'm talking about things, separate apart from, from that issue, I would say we're talking about things that go beyond just that product. So, so the, the distinction has not been made in Bill C-48. But I would also say, I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that we're in a situation now where a product that comes out of the end of a pipe is subjected to uh, all this kind of consideration. But if we put that product in uh, a train or in a truck, um, it just gets offloaded onto a boat regardless. So we don't have, so, so there, and, and the fact of the matter is, is there's a great deal of product coming in and out of, pro, of ports in an, each and every day that actually present bigger safety risks than what would be coming in and out in a, in a double-hulled tanker um, filled with bitumen or some other product or more, more refined product. And, and so there's a tremendous inconsistency with respect to that. And, and so we need, and, and, and it goes back to this issue that what's really happening is people are grasping at every explanation, every argument to stop the pipeline in order to stop the energy industry, not understanding that even in a place like BC, people in BC, do you know, like there are at least 40,000 people in BC who live in BC and pay taxes in BC, who fly in and out of Fort McMurray and earn their income in Fort McMurray and fly back to their lovely uh, picturesque mountain town and then buy stuff in, on Main Street in that lovely picturesque mountain town and and contribute to their community league charity fund and take their kids to hockey and do all those things in in BC based on the income they earn from flying in and out of of, uh, Fort McMurray and and that picture needs to be painted more clearly even for the folks in BC let alone for the folks in the rest of Canada.
0: Now you painted a a kind of a stark cultural contrast between what most people in Alberta uh, want out of the energy environment equation and what a lot of people in British Columbia Want now you're a political party leader you know that Justin Trudeau is getting closer after after having been quite an ally to the Alberta uh, oil industry he's getting closer and closer to a federal election next year in which he might hope for a dozen seats in British Columbia and he's crazy if he thinks he's going to hang on to the four seats in Alberta that he's got now um, have you noticed that that consideration is tending to distract him as time goes on
1: well you know I, I'm not going to uh, uh, hypothesize or speculate over what drives the, uh, the Prime Minister's uh, actions on any given day. What I would say, and I suspect what he knows, is that that would be a very short-sighted way to look at things. Because at the end of the day, um, if you are running to be the leader of a, of a national leader of the country, you need to be able to speak to everybody in that country about your record on the economy and your record on job creation, and your record on 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 uh, attracting investment. And the fact of the matter is, is that whether there are two government seats in Alberta or 30 government seats in Alberta, uh, that doesn't really matter. Alberta still contributes significantly to the health of the Canadian economy. And with the current headwinds that are facing our, the international economy and the Canadian economy, uh, we cannot afford uh, to let... Uh, the Alberta economy struggle and the energy industry struggle um, as we sell um, sell our, our, our oil for $10 a barrel while everyone else is, is getting $50. Uh, that is not a thing. So uh, any, as far as I'm concerned, there is no path to victory for any uh, politician seeking to lead this country who thinks that they can do so by shutting down the energy industry.
0: I mentioned... I don't, I don't think it comes as news to you that you're a leader of a political party um, and you're heading into an election yourself. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs>
1: That's why my calendar is so darn full. <laughs>
0: um, we've already had Jason Kenney up to, 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 to offer his vision of uh, all of these issues and of, of, of the looming confrontation between you and, and him. How do you think the next election plays out? What, uh, like, there's an awful lot of people in Alberta who say, you know, Rachel Dolly's really nice, and uh, Jason Kenney's tougher, so we'll take him. What would you say to those people?
1: Um, you know, I don't know that that's exactly the way we hear it, but what I would say is this, that, you know, I mean, first of all, as I've said before, uh, I'm actually quite focused on, on leading the province through this current uh, challenge that we are facing. But, you know, when we get to an election, it's going to be pretty simple. You know, there's going to be a very clear choice. Uh, for Albertans to make. You know, our, our government has uh, worked very hard uh, to support Albertans. You know, it's sort of a, you know, do you cut and fire your way to prosperity? Or do you build and hire your way to prosperity? We are a build and hire government. We've invested, we, we have protected, our public health care and made sure that it, that, it's, that it slowly and prudently improved. We have protected and grown and supported our public education system significantly. We have um, uh, worked very hard to promote uh, inclusivity and to celebrate diversity, whether we're talking about LGBTQ rights or, or anti-racism. We generally speaking have a very progressive, forward-looking view of Alberta's future that uh, depends upon significant investment in diversification uh, not only of our energy industry but of our economy as a whole and repositioning ourselves uh, for the future. That's our vision. The other vision is one that is really very much focused on, on looking backwards uh, by, by admission of the opposition caucus members themselves adopting a plan that quote will hurt um, that is designed primarily to uh, enable um, a tax cut of about a billion dollars to the top 1% of the population. So two very different visions. And then, of course, also um, a, uh, a very, very socially conservative uh, political party that, uh, that struggles mightily on issues as it relates to, uh, to um, uh, uh, you know, diversity and LGBTQ rights as well as women's rights. So that's the, the, the different view, and you know what I said in the last election and what is true, I mean, people out here have a, a view of what Alberta is, but let me tell you, it is the youngest, most diverse, best educated uh, population in the country. And uh, it is always, the Albertans are always evolving, and it's, it's, not, it's not your grandpa's Alberta anymore.
0: For 50 years, people wondered whether all the people moving to Alberta, because of the economic advantage that it, that it uh, offered, we're going to change the nature of Alberta. Has that happened?
1: I would say that that is in the progress process of happening, and I would say that you know our election in 2015 is one example of that.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, your opponent is probably going to say, "Well, I'm I'm going to stick with the what the old the real Alberta, the rooted Alberta, the the." Um, uh, and there are an awful lot of people uh, in any place who. Worry that newcomers are going to change the nature of that place, uh, and that might might tend to see you as the ally of that newer stranger, Alberta.
1: Um, well, I would say that the view of most Albertans is that they welcome that newer stranger, Alberta, and uh, and that in fact um, Albertans uh, embrace uh, change and diversity and and uh, and uh, opportunities and and hopefulness. Uh, one of the things, you know, I've lived in Vancouver for eight or nine years. I lived in uh, Toronto for three years. Uh, my husband's from, uh, from the East Coast. So I've, I've, you know, seen a lot of this country. And uh, one of the things that I've always been so struck by... Uh, about my home is that it is one of the friendliest, most uh, optimistic group of humans you're ever gonna come across. And I think it is that same view that uh, drives um, what I think will be ultimately a positive response to the question you just asked.
0: I have to wonder, when you you, um, go to your computer and you see the President of the United States congratulating the Saudis for driving the price of oil down Mm -hmm. and asking them to do more of that, how big a wrench does that throw into your day?
1: Well, I mean, you know, one of the things we did do is we suggested uh, to the uh, opposition who just elected uh, an MLA who dined out on the fact that he helped elect that president, that maybe that wasn't the best move. Um, But um, nonetheless, you know, that's a challenge. And, uh, and it's one of many challenges. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, if Albertans can get full value for the resources, we can sustain, uh, you know, uh, uh, increasing and decreasing values of, of for the barrel. Um, we just can't sustain $10 a barrel, you know? $50, $80, we can make it work, but $10, uh, we're gonna all suffer some
0: significant problems. I'm just going to check. Oh, my goodness, we don't have a lot of time. (laughs) Uh, First ministers' meeting next week. What's your main message to your colleagues?
1: Um, We have probably the most significant economic problem facing the country in what is going on in Ottawa. And uh, that needs to be something that uh, we all um, uh, refocus our efforts on addressing. And uh, I'm going to take every opportunity uh, to raise it. Um, at the meeting.
0: Are you happy with the itinerary the Prime Minister has laid out for that meeting?
1: I would suggest that uh, it's going to need to be uh, uh, upgraded a little bit. Okay. Um, did I that, that, see how I did that?
0: Upgraded? That's yeah. very good. Yeah. <laughs> Refined, we might say. Um, I'm going to stop it there. Thank you very much, Premier, for taking the time so generously to lay out your vision of, of Alberta and of the issues facing uh, the country. And I want to thank everyone here and out in TV land for joining us too. Uh, And as always, I want to thank our partners, uh, CPAC, for getting the signal out to the world and our uh, loyal and faithful sponsors, the Canadian Bankers Association. We could not have done it without you. Thanks, everyone. There's a reception next door. We'll see you there.
1: Thank you.